Good day and welcome to the Frontline Chatter podcast. My name is Jarring Gibson with co-host Andrew Morgan. Today we have Sean Bass, um, well known throughout the industry. He's now working with uh, with VMware. So welcome today, Sean. Uh, thanks, Jarring. And uh, my co-host Andy Morgan is on as well. So we'll go pick it over to Andy. Yeah, um, very exciting episode, obviously, to have Sean Bass, a man who needs uh, no introduction in our industry, uh, on to talk to us uh, today. Um, Sean has a very interesting story, or at least it, it appears that way. Hopefully, he can follow through <laughs> with something interesting, uh, as you know, as his uh, career path has kind of gone from from independent consultant all the way up to working for a vendor. So, yeah, uh, we were really excited when, when Sean um, agreed to do this podcast. So, I can't wait to jump in, if I'm honest. Yes, uh, and thank you again, Sean, for <clears throat> for joining us today on the podcast. So. We'll go ahead and kind of, uh, we know you're a busy man, so we'll go ahead and kind of jump right in. So, you know, for years, Sean, you know, and I think you were consulting for, what, 19 years on your own? Yeah. Was it? So, you know, for years, we know kind of that, that Sean went hand-in-hand hand with, with Citrix. You know, you've been a long-time CTP. I believe you're one of the charter CTPs. Um, yeah. And you've also done a lot of presenting over the years on profiles and folder redirection, GPU performance, and so forth. So after being, you know, <clears throat> known hand-in-hand hand with Citrix for years... Um, and also being a CTP, what kind of made you um, take the jump to go to VMware? So that's uh, that's an interesting question, <laughs> and and I think it probably has uh, multiple answers. Um, to to begin with, one of the things that I don't want to say has bothered me over the years, but it's been something that's been kind of nagging at me is as much as I've enjoyed doing the consulting for my customers, and I feel like I've implemented great solutions. I, I never really feel like there was ever going to be that, you know, looking back moment where someone would say, hey, Sean did that. And um, I, I, don't, I don't know that I've created that yet at VMware, um, having been there only for about uh, six months at this point. Um, but I'm hopeful that when I'm able to look back on the work that I did at VMware in the course of the future, I'll be able to say, hey, that acquisition, I did that, that uh, product strategy direction, I influenced that, you know. And I, I felt like in some ways, I could do that with the CTP and the MVP program, but um, it was frustrating in some ways in that sometimes I'd make certain suggestions that um, were what I thought were really great ideas and other people agreed they were great ideas, but then they just kind of fell on deaf ears. And, and I realized that that's, you know, it's up to those companies to decide which suggestions that they receive from their community, which ones they're going to implement, which ones they're not going to implement. But um, I just kind of felt like it would be better if I was somewhat in charge of my own destiny of the things that I was recommending and how they get implemented. So while I never expected myself to end up at a software vendor, uh, it's something that I wanted to do to actually kind of leave my mark on the industry. Very, very nice. So, you know, so now you, you being VMware and having that uh, that past history, you know, with being a CTP and being an MVP, can you kind of tell us, you know, kind of your backstory? Because, again, you've been you've been consulting for 19 years before actually making that jump to a vendor. So can you kind of tell us some of that backstory? Yeah. So, you know, before, you know, I, I started consulting uh, independently around the mid 90s. And prior to that, I had actually worked for a Citrix Platinum reseller in the Chicago area that is now no longer around. They ended up closing the company down a few years after I left. Not related to me leaving, just they ran into some business problems. Um, and, you know, it, it was the kind of thing that I decided to strike out on my own because I was tired of having a boss. I wanted to kind of, you know, choose your own destiny and, and do what I wanted to do. Um, and, of course, you know, the reality is when you're independent, it's not like, you, you don't have a boss anymore. You now have, you know, 10 bosses. It's all your customers. So you still ultimately have a boss that you're reporting to. Um, but, you know, things are a little bit more in your control. 
Um, you know, the only thing that I, I think that, you know, I decided that I needed to do something different was I had done it for a long time. I mean, I said 19 years in consulting, and uh, I think it was just it was a good time for a change. Yeah, and I can understand that too because I recently made my, my jump from working, you know, from a, a partner to in, independent, and um, that's one thing I like to thank you because as you're making that transition into to VMware, I was making that transition into being independent, and you helped me out a lot with kind of kickstarting that by yep. by being able to hand me over some of the, those customers as well. So again, I, I'm very grateful to you for that, and, and I, I thank you for that uh, again. Well, you know, I think it's it's outstanding. I mean, you're you're one of the sharpest people out there, and it it made perfect sense for me to turn over my customers to somebody that I trusted. I certainly don't want to hand my customers to somebody that I wouldn't trust. Um, you know, you've got close proximity to the Chicago market, so you could certainly visit any of my customers. So that makes a lot of sense. And you know, just overall, I always want to see the people that I respect in the industry to succeed. So when you decided that you were striking out on your own, you know, it's in, in my best interest just as a friend to do whatever I can. You know, coaching you on what you need to do to start your business, what insurances you have to have in place, and all those types of things. Just because it's it's the right thing to do for a friend. So no worries there. Oh, well, again, thank you because you know you've been very very helpful. And, and again, I mean that helping me out kickstart that and, and other guys like like Webster as well you know give me advice on, on taxes and, and other insurance also so you know I appreciate you guys in the community help me out and I'll be make sure to, to pay that forward um, so kind of um, moving back on to what you're doing now at, at VMware um, kind of what has excited you about the product roadmap and what's coming with VMware and also some of the acquisitions that have happened since you've been there Right. So, you know, I started in, uh, well, my official startup date was like September 29th, but for all practical purposes, I started in October. And um, in that time, there's obviously just been a lot of learning and getting up to speed and all the VMware stuff. I mean, when you, even though I work for the EUC division of VMware, there's still an immense amount of sort of cross-product pollination between the groups and having to know what the products do and, and all those kind of things. So it's been uh, a, a deep learning experience for me just getting up to speed on all the different products that VMware has. And, you know, some of these products I have worked with in my customer environments in the past. I mean, I've been doing vSphere for a gazillion years, so that, that's not necessarily new to me. But VMware has a ton of products, so kind of getting up to speed on those um, is, is something that's, that's taken a good amount of time. Um, you know, in that time also, I worked uh, very closely on the Emedio acquisition uh, for several months, actually. We were working on that um, pretty much from like, you know, October, November, um, you know, onward. And we finally announced it then at PAX. And it was, it was a long journey, but I was, I was happy to, uh, to be involved in that. Um, but, but really, you know, what, what got me to join VMware in the first place, and I kind of didn't talk about this yet, but, you know, you guys were kind of asking, you know, why a software vendor, why VMware now? Um, you know, for, for all the years that I did consulting and all the times I've had debates about persistent VDI versus non-persistent VDI and terminal server versus, you know, VDI and all these types of things, um, there's, there's always fundamentally been a problem in that you know, a lot of the software vendors in this space, including, you know, Citrix and Microsoft, they sometimes seem content to just sort of do all call, you know, quote unquote, business as usual, just, you know, keep the lights on, you know, provision desktops the same way, use your configuration management tools that you're used to using. And um, in, in some cases, I was a little bit fed up that the industry wasn't moving in new directions faster. And that's not to say that there aren't software companies out there that are doing their part. I mean, you know, Unidesk has got a great product. They're making good traction with customers and, and Liquidware has got a product for this. So there's a lot of customers that are tackling the problem in different ways. But for me, what was interesting is that, you know, VMware 
uh, announced the acquisition of App Volumes or Cloud Volumes back at the time um, at VMworld last year. And that was really the kind of the defining moment for me that um, I was, I was, you know, it was a culmination of things that I was noticing happening at VMware that to me clearly stated that they were in this industry to win it. And when I say win it, I don't just mean like they want to beat Citrix. I mean, Citrix is one of many competitors that VMware has in this space, but I saw such a huge investment in, in user computing uh, you know, top to bottom, the Desktone acquisition, the AirWatch acquisition, you know, key executives that have, have moved over to VMware. There's been so many things that have happened in the last 18 months at VMware that really has redefined end-user computing at VMware. And I tell many people this, I wouldn't have worked at VMware EUC four, four or five years ago. I, I just, I didn't think that they had a good vision or strategy. I didn't think they had the right people. Um, and, and all of that has changed in the last 18 months. So I think it's a very, very exciting time for VMware EUC. Yeah, and I have to agree with you too as well because you know, me and Andrew were talking in our previous episode we did with Harry too. You know, you guys are making a lot of very nice, a lot of contraction, and, and it's making some very nice moves. And you, you can see, you know, the VMware EUC of old is very much, you know, not as good as it is today. And you, there've been some very nice moves in acquisitions. You know, between the media app volumes, like I said, Desktone, AirWatch. So. It's interesting to see, you know, how that moves forward because, uh, again, it, it's a very different EUC from the EUC of old in VMware. Well, it's, it's, it's crazy to think about. I mean, I was doing some, um, some blogger briefings uh, uh, like a week or two ago uh, about some upcoming releases and that kind of stuff. And I was amazed to think about the fact that it's literally only been two years, so 2013, VMware, from an EUC perspective, was a VDI-only company. That's all they had was Horizon View. And... And since that time, there's been so many components added into that portfolio, even from other business units that have a, a huge EUC impact, like the Evo solution. Uh, so, you know, hyperconverged infrastructure, while a completely separate uh, entity and certainly used for data center as well as EUC, as you guys know, hyperconverged is, is a great way of, of deploying VDI. So, you know, we've got the, the Evo solutions, which is exciting, and that was kind of kicked off last year at VMworld, which is another reason that got me very excited about joining. Um, you know, I've got all the assets of NSX, which, which fundamentally, so I, one of the things you were asking me is, like, you know, what am I excited about for the product roadmap at VMware? Um, one of the things that most excites me is ways that we can truly make VDI better than what the physical PC story is, and I think NSX is one of those stories. Now... I don't mean to over-trivialize, you know, the complexity of implementing network virtualization. It's not like you just, you know, install some product, turn a switch, and it's all working. I mean, there's some, some setup that you need to do in your network environment to, to support it. But there's a potential play there, and we're see, starting to see traction with some of our customers, where they're combining NSX with VDI to create a security profile for virtual desktops that actually makes it better than what a physical PC is today. Because as you guys know, and I, I've written you know, a five-part blog on Brian Madden's website about this, that, that VDI doesn't fundamentally improve Windows desktop security. You've still got the same you know, vulnerable Windows code sitting in the data center. And if anything, you've made it hyper-connected with you know, 10 or 40 gigabit Ethernet where it can talk to every single server and desktop in the headquarters site very, very rapidly. So what I think is interesting about NSX is we've got the capability to enable what's called micro-segmentation, where we can define a set of rules that says this VDI desktop can talk to these four servers and you know this email server, whatever, and, and leave it at that and not allow it to communicate with anything else. So even if that machine gets owned, 
by some zero-day APT that we don't have a protection for and don't know that it, it's hit anything, at least we have some comfort in knowing that there's a limited subset of systems that that machine can now attack. And I think that fundamentally changes security uh, in the context of VDI. Yes, and, and, and I agree with that too because I've had customers with that challenge in the past and they've tried to, to find different ways to, to do that. I remember using, I think it was... Um, something called the Odyssey client. I think it was Juniper's client possibly with some with some energy companies where, where they were trying to uh, to do something like that. So it, it's good to see that capability with NS, NSX and with VDI. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's there's always been organizations who've tried to do things like, you know, IPsec tunnels between hosts to kind of segment them and that kind of stuff. But, you know, IPsec is not a broad way to enforce, you know, one-to-many communications without making a very, very complicated, uh, you know, networking configuration. In most cases, it's just used for, you know, host-to-host secure communications. Uh, but to really do this more effectively at scale with a large number of systems, you really need um, uh, a, a distributed firewall-type solution. Because in a virtualized data center, VMs are moving around all the time, either through, you know, vMotion, DRS, uh, HA, whatever the case may be. So you always have systems moving around. And if you've got a manual uh, physical firewall mentality in a virtualized data center, it makes this very complicated. You're having to constantly manage, you know, scads of VLANs and all this kind of stuff. And I think NSX can really make that a completely different story. I think NSX kind of feeds into the whole, um, uh, you know, product landscape that you were talking about earlier, how other vendors have potentially been happy to sit back and do the status quo for the desktop virtualization industry. I mean, they obviously touch that VDI is more secure, but they don't really tell you why. NSX is, is a prime example of VMware taking a, a, a kind of given of desktop virtualization and actually making it true, similar with the, with, as you mentioned, with cloud volumes and um, non-persistent desktops and, you know, the Immedio acquisition, you guys obviously saw a, a place for user environment for, or user environment virtualization in uh, in a, a VDI slash SBC environment. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, <clears throat> I completely hear what you're saying about, you know, VMware actually trying to tackle problems head on. And something Harry said to us recently, too. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong. Like I said I'm I'm not trying to trivialize that these things are are you know push button and enable them. It's it, it requires work for sure. But I think that when you think about the effort that you put in and the benefit that you reap, it's it's worth uh, you know thinking about making some of those changes to to actually make an environment better than it's ever possible to do in the past. Yeah, so um, so you, we kind of talked about um, you know you kind of once you joining VMware and kind of get up to speed on some of the products you, you might not have worked worked with and their vast product portfolio. So what has the the first you know several months at VMware been like for you? Uh, it's been good. Uh, there's there's obviously as I said been a ton of learning. Just you know not only learning products that I'm not you know very familiar with, but also just learning the people. You know learning who the different uh, you know product management people are, who the different R and D people are. So there's a lot of just getting familiar with people. Um, and you know beyond that, I've, I've been doing a lot of work in you know, sort of business development, M&A type activities, looking at companies that are interesting um, for VMware. And, and th- these aren't necessarily situations where it's always going to be an acquisition. I mean, VMware has a lot of um, ISV partners that we, you know, resell their product or their product is available in the, the vCloud Air ISV marketplace. You know, there's a lot of different circumstances that, you know, third-party software products are worked with from a VMware perspective but aren't necessarily acquired. But 
I've, I've been involved in a number of uh, company conversations with different firms to kind of evaluate what their technology looks like, how it fits into the VMware story as, as it pertains to EUC, and you know where we think we should go with that company next. So I said I've, I've probably talked to like 40 different companies in, in those six months. So it's, it's pretty impressive in terms of uh, the number of companies that I've been talking to. And, and as I said, you know, it's so, so far, one of them was an acquisition and one was an investment uh, that I was directly involved with, but, you know, out of 40 companies. So that's, you know, that's not a, a huge number, but it's, it's interesting in my mind to, to be able to talk to so many companies and see what they're all about and, uh, and, and think really about, you know, how those technologies really could make VMware EUC better and have the ability ultimately to influence what we do with those, those technologies. So I think that's, that's very, it's, it's kind of right up my alley. It's exactly what I wanted to do. Very nice. So, you know, speaking of doing that, that research on acquisitions and looking at those, those four different companies, and, and again, you said one was an investment, one was um, an acquisition. So kind of tell us um, your, your thoughts on the media acquisition. You know, is this purely a, a profile play um, or you, you, you really can think that UEV is a, is a core requirement of desktop virtualization? Well, I think it depends. I think there's a number of trends that are happening in the industry right now that, that changes people's perception about what user environment management requirements are. Um, and, and let me explain what I mean by that. If you rewind the clock, you know, 10, 15 years, uh, people were not very PC savvy. Mobile phones didn't exist. Tablets didn't exist. And in many cases, people would completely freak out if, you know, a desktop icon was moved, let alone removed or renamed or, or something like that. Um, and I think that the market dynamic has changed slightly in that because of device proliferation with mobile phones and tablets and people getting new devices and switching contacts between devices so rapidly, I feel like the average level of comfort slash intelligence with tech for the average user has risen. Now, I know both of you guys have worked in large environments before, so you might be like, yeah, nice, uh, nice uh, sound bite there, but the reality is people still freak out about move, removed icons and stuff. But I, I mean, as a collective whole, I think people have become more used to change than they used to be used to 10, 15 years ago. So when we think about what user environment management solutions do in providing sort of that consistency between environments, I don't think it was as important as it was 10 to 15 years ago. However, that multi-device context thing has raised the way in which people consume applications and services, meaning that you know it used to be common for somebody to have one physical desktop, and that was the end of the story. And now they may have a laptop, they may have terminal service sessions, they might have a VDI desktop here, they might have a vGPU system over there. So there are so many different places they're leveraging their technology. And of course, we have to provide uh, a set of data that that user can use and a set of um, uh, uh, I don't want to use the term workspace because that's kind of an overloaded term, but sort of a consistent workspace. And, and I don't even mean the, the settings so much, but just one point of access where everything can be aggregated together, let them access the things that they need, and in certain cases, provide a consistent look and feel if that platform warrants it. So if there's certain drive mappings that are required for a certain app to operate, obviously making sure we're consistently apply, applying that across all the environments. Um, so I think there there is a use case for it that is important, particularly about the multiple different ways people consume apps from different platforms. You know, VMware has on-premises, uh, you know, Horizon View. We've got the public DAS, uh, the, the cloud-based desktops, the former Destone stuff. Um, and we've got offerings like a Type 2 hypervisor solution like uh, uh, Horizon Flex. So, you know, you can consume applications in multiple different ways. And uh, in a lot of those cases, there are certain things that need to be applied 
And it goes way beyond profile. I mean, simple things like drive mappings or setting a location-based printer and those kind of things. The, the requirements go beyond simple user profile. Um, and it's really more about the context of using applications in many different use cases that drive some of that. So if I could, um, if, if I could uh, just sum up what I've heard, just to make sure I understand. What, what you're saying is the, the the proliferation of devices and and the, kind of the multi-profile uh, you know a user may um, maintain from different devices they're connecting kind of brings in a requirement for UEV if that's fair to say. Yes, I would I would okay. I would think that's fair. Because I mean, if if a person just uses one singular device, I mean, you don't even technically need to to roam their content other than if it's a disposable VDI device, a, a non-persistent pooled VDI. But you know, you, back back in the days of of having, you know, and, and this is still this way today with laptops, people don't have a profile solution on laptops in most cases. Some organizations do some folder redirection with some offline files and that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, you don't move that stuff from laptop to laptop in general, aside from migration uh, period. But again, when you start having people using applications in so many different contexts, it starts to become more important for certain settings uh, for the environment to, to roam. And, and in many cases, you know, printers and drive mappings is going to be very critical because they have to get access to their data. They have to be able to print wherever they're accessing the stuff from. So some of those things become very, very relevant regardless of what, it, what app is used. And other things like you know, persona settings for a certain application, may, it may not be as important to roam those things if the application is only going to be consumed in one context. So if they're running a vGPU-based application on a, on a VDI desktop, they might not run that application in any other context. So there's no point in transporting the settings for that particular application. But other things like Microsoft Office, if they happen to use a workflow in the application that fires off an email, you might want to have certain settings for Outlook transported everywhere that they go. So it depends on the use cases. Yes, and uh, very yeah, and I agree with that with that statement. And you know, it, it's good to see that you guys are making that acquisition to. To, to bring that in into the the, the VMware stack, um, and speaking more products in the in the stack, you know, let's talk about vGPU. You know, the the big push in twenty fifteen. Um, do you see this as a niche niche, however you say it, use case? Um, does it stack up development cycles? Um, do you see it as for everyone? You know, I, I don't know if you saw some of the the back and forth comments between some of us on Twitter about you know everyone uses GPU, and yes, we know that. You know, Windows will use it, Office will use it, but you know, is vGPU for every use case, or is it more just for for certain use cases? Yeah, so I think I think today, when you look at the the landscape of of what's doable today, and you guys have probably seen enough slides from Citrix and VMware and and Nvidia about the segmentation of the market. You know, having the designers and power users and knowledge workers and task workers and all of that kind of stuff. And you know, at the at the low end, the task worker level. Uh, you can use software GPU to get by. You know, you can you can certainly run Windows Arrow, you can run a browser, you can run Office, whatever. Um, the reality is, and I've written a blog article about this, uh, you know, called titled "That Public Service Announcement." You know, soft GPU can kill your scalability. And uh, Helga Klein's also written some stuff on this, and there's a number of people who have written about this. The reality is, is that that software GPU, once you present the software GPU to a to a VDI VM. Um, the applications that are coded to take advantage of a GPU are going to attempt to do that in processor, and they're not going to get a great level of performance out of it, particularly depending on how complex the 3D use case is. So, you know, I had customers where I was seeing upwards of 50 to 100 percent compute rendering certain pages in IE because the GPU was just going nuts trying to render some of the page content, um, and because there isn't a GPU there, it was doing it all in, in software. Now. 
there's a mitigation for that, which is you can simply just turn off the use of the soft GPU in the virtual desktop for the browser and for the internet applications. And I've written on my blog a couple of uh, settings that you can use to turn those off in the popular applications. Um, and that's a way to mitigate that problem. But at the end of the day, people are going to come to expect sort of a like-like experience between what they have on their local side versus what they have in their virtual desktop side. And, and today, without the use of a GPU, that's not going to be a like-like user experience. So is it something that people are going to revolt and demand GPU? Maybe, maybe not. I, I think for the short term, those task worker use cases can be handled with software rendering in a lot of cases if, if you don't want to spend the money on GPU. Can they, be, can they be better with a GPU? Absolutely. Um, I do think people are, you know, years to come, people aren't going to think about this in the same way because GPUs are going to make their way into server chassis uh, just like they've made their way into every desktop and every mobile device. And I think when that happens, people won't question, do I need a GPU or not? It'll be there, so it'll just be a matter of making use of it. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the short term, I do think that the you know, knowledge worker, power user, designer in particular use cases are going to be much better fits. And, and when I say much better fits, I mean those are going to be the low-hanging fruit. You know, duh, of course you need it. Um, that, that, that task worker, the low-end one, is the one where I think it's going to potentially go either way for some customers depending on how serious they are about the experience. If they're serious about providing a great experience, they're going to stick a GPU in there and they're going to make use of it. If they're like, hey, you know, VDI doesn't need to be as good or better than local compute, so we're going to get by with software rendering, then, you know, you can get by. Yeah, so it's going to come down to, you know, uh, user experience versus, you know, your, your actual um, scalability you know, depending if you need it or not. So, you know, they're very good points on, on, on the GPU. And um, again, you know, I hope to see that, you know, starting being in, in server chassis. So this is no longer a conversation. It's just there for everybody to use. Um, so Linux desktops, um, the VMware's approach to that, there, there's been some, some chatter around that. Um, yeah, there was an announcement, official announcement that came out at last year's V Forum. Sanjay Poonin announced intent that we're doing Linux desktop. So uh, VMware has committed that uh, we will be doing uh, a Linux desktop solution. Uh, so you know, it's it's one of these kind of things that you know you know pe people ask you know does Linux desktop make sense? You know, for the last fifteen years, everyone's been talking about this is the year of the Linux desktop when it's going to take over Windows and that kind of stuff. And and I don't know that that's necessarily the case that that Linux is going to displace Windows. I think Windows is going to be around for a very very long time. And I don't think, aside from pockets of scenarios where somebody says we're going to replace Windows with Linux, that's really going to succeed at scale. Um, however, there are some organizations that, depending on their industry vertical, they have a high use of Linux in their environment. Um, and in those cases, you know, the the big challenge becomes. And actually, I had a conversation with a with a with a pharmacy customer that uh, has about three thousand Linux developers in their environment, and today. They only have one remote access vehicle, which is connecting through their remote access gateway to their virtual desktop environment. They don't have any VPN anymore. They've, they've shut all that down. So the only way they were able to enable their Linux developers was basically to drop them into a Windows VDI desktop and then have them SSH from the Windows desktop into the Linux servers to do their development work. And that's obviously a huge waste of resources just to provide uh, a virtual desktop launch pad, effectively, a, a jump network. So a customer like that could take a Linux desktop and essentially do all their development there 
and, and stage it from their desktop up into the Linux server environment without having to do this you know, Windows jump network uh, configuration. So I think there's opportunity there. There's big opportunity in oil and gas. There's a huge opportunity in Asia Pacific for Linux desktop, um, China in particular. So I think you know, there's use cases for it. There's customers that are demanding it. Um, again, is it going to reach a point where it's going to be challenging Windows desktop in the data center? I doubt it, but uh, there's enough use cases that, that warrants the investment. Yeah, and I agree because I've come across those use cases in the past, and that's something I've given feedback for years to Citrix, you know, through PTech and now CTP about this because, you know, I've done the same thing where you've done that double hop scenario. You know, you're either using a VDI to get to a Linux desktop or using something through ZenApp, a published application to get to it. So, you know, there's use cases out there, and I've come across it in telco, you know, oil and gas, you know, offshore development, you, you name it, you know, and. Right. I know Andy probably has some um, interesting comments here about, you know, cost and education and, and so forth as well. So um, he recently, you know, talked about that on the 10X Next podcast about Linux desktops and, you know, those being out there in the workforce. So, yeah, I absolutely see the use case there for, for a lower cost desktop entry model, particularly around education where, you know, Linux may be, may be available. Um, as I mentioned in the previous podcast as well, like with, with, with HTML5 and with, you know, um, with, with Linux being so freely available and you know the the, the maturity is reached, there there is potential there for uh, emerging markets to just use Linux desktop. So I like I, I absolutely welcome the news and I, I applaud VMware for for moving forward with it because um, I, I think it's it, it's going to be good all around. And um, personally, I I could work day to day in a Linux desktop with zero issue. Um, and of course, with Horizon doing you know Windows apps for your RDS now, I mean, just nothing to say that I couldn't take one or two crap applications and move them off where you know I need to host them elsewhere. So yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great move, and I'm I'm really excited to see them come forward. Yeah, and there's actually you know I think the times are changing quite a bit too with the number of organizations that are moving to SaaS based applications. That's not to say that you know I'm dooming the Windows application anyway because I've I've said for a long time that Windows apps are going to be around you know post-apocalyptic nuclear war, but um, <laughs> it's 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 one of those things that because people are moving more and more things to uh, SaaS-based applications, I do really think that between VDI and terminal services, you can handle all the other use cases for applications that you need to serve. So I'm I'm in agreement with Andy. I think that you know you could look to do something like a Linux desktop as a standard issue for a lot of people in certain verticals and just serve the Windows apps up where you need to. And if you're able to do that, then, you know, VDA becomes a moot point at that at that stage. You know, you still have your RDS licensing you need to have, but, um, you know, the, the VDA license itself tends to go away. And, and who knows, hopefully we might even see that change in the future, which would which would be fantastic. Yeah, so um, kind of moving on because we're getting here towards the, towards the time constraints. So, um you know, you're kind of one of those guys in the industry that, you know, you're kind of always two steps ahead. You know, you, you kind of keep up and, and know anything. You know, I know you said to me when I was doing a lot of stuff in the forums and stuff and you were joking with me saying, you know, once you have kids, it's all downhill. You know, <laughs> your, your time's going to go away. And that is true, And you know, with me having two kids now. But um, how do you kind of um, stay ahead? And then, you know, what advice can you give to others out there that are starting to up and coming and, and stay ahead of the pack? Well, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because I, I recall, you know, when the CTP program first kicked off in 2006 and I was in that group, you know, back then I was a little bit younger than I am now, but I was still, you know, not the youngest CTP by, by stretch. Um, so, and I look at, you know, kind of the influx of CTPs that came into the program over time and, you know, some really, really young people. And um, I remember thinking to myself, like, yeah, just wait, those young whippersnappers, they're going to get old too. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it really does 
it really does change the amount of available time that you have to work on stuff when you've got a family. I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. And you know, I was laughing when you first sent me the schedule for this, and you're like, "Oh yeah, 4 p.m." Which you know was fine for you and I being in Central Time Zone, but here Andy is like, you know, midnight, and he's got young kids too. So I was thinking, that's not good. And you know, having met his wife now, I don't want to see her again and be like, "Oh, you're the guy that kept him up to midnight." Not that Andy wouldn't be up at midnight anyway, because that guy's crazy. He's up at all hours of the day. <laughs> but you know, the point is, just you know, it. it it definitely changes your life for sure. Great. So um, let's kind of talk about what, um, you know, the well, I don't think I, go ahead. Sorry. I don't think I actually answered your question of how do you stay two steps ahead? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's, that's a, that's a tough thing to answer. Cause I, I don't really know what the secret formula is. I guess the one thing I would say, and, and I, I tell this to everybody, regardless of your industry is never stop your desire to learn. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be about learning about things in your own field, but just learn about anything. You know, pick up a book and read it on a topic that you don't know anything about, or spend some time working on a technology that that maybe isn't something that's even in your line of work, but it's just something that interests you. So you could be a classic, uh, you know, terminal services VEI guy, but cloud's interesting to you. So go spend some time learning about cloud or trying to stand up, you know, a cloud offering. Or go learn about Docker. Go learn about any number of things that are, you know, again, you know, maybe an adjunct or tangential type thing. It's not really what you do for a living, but just always strive to have a, a, a thirst for learning things, regardless of whether or not it's complementary to your day job. Because the more you learn, the better off you are as a, as a, as a person. You've got a more well-rounded skill set. Um, I spend a lot of time keeping up on things on, on Twitter and blogs and that kind of stuff. So to me, it's just, you know, always making sure that you're investing your time wisely in, in learning about new things. And so, yeah, kind of staying with, with that theme there, is that how you kind of got in, into InfoSec? Because I, I noticed that you like InfoSec and some of your tweets out there. Is this, you know, kind of like a, a backup plan, a hobby? <laughs> you know, what, what do you like about InfoSec? And, and is it more of that kind of crossroads with EUC life or... You know, kind of, kind of tell us about that <clears throat> with yourself being interested in InfoSec. So InfoSec actually came about for me before uh, EUC and, you know, Windows desktops and all that kind of stuff came about. So when I first got started in technology, at the very early days, I was doing, you know, uh, PC building. It's even before PC, but I'll just call it roughly PC building. Um, and uh, playing around with applications and installing stuff and farting around. I did a lot of software development in the early days in C and C++ and Assembler, so I did a lot of programming at a very young age. Uh, some of my programs actually ended up at my, my dad's work, which I can't speak of what the company was right now, but uh, I, some of those software programs I wrote were actually in production uh, at a very large company in the U.S., um, and it uh, InfoSec was something that was fascinating to me, but you got to keep in mind that when I was doing InfoSec-related work, and I'll call it InfoSec-related work even though it largely was hacking, um, it was a very different world back at that time. There was no internet. Uh, it was basically hacking into PBXs and things of that nature because the, um, the internet didn't exist, frankly. Um, so I spent a lot of time, you know, learning about that stuff. I spent a lot of time learning about, um, you know, um, editing hex code for cracking software and doing things like that. So I did a lot of different things that were, you know, these days highly illegal. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, back at that time I, I wasn't uh, an adult. And so it was less, you know, I, I guess I didn't think about those things as much back in those days, but I did make sort of a, a firm commitment when I turned 18 to sort of turn away from things that would not be viewed positively and, and start changing the way that I, I operated. And that's when I kind of went fully legit and started doing things that were, 
you know, something that I could actually do for a living and not be at risk. And this is, you know, back in the early days, there really wasn't a, a, a you know, there wasn't a clear divider between uh, a good hacker and a bad hacker back in those days. I mean, there were people doing defense and people doing offense and that kind of stuff, but it was a very different different world back then. Um, but, you know, I, I still really enjoy InfoSec and I, I try to stay up to speed on it as much as I can. And, and I follow a lot of people on Twitter. I read a lot of blogs. I follow a lot of research. Um, I still try to make it out to like Black Hat, DEF CON, that kind of stuff at least, uh, you know, once a year uh, or catch some other conference. Uh, there's, a, there's a great one uh, here in Chicago. Um, so I, you know, I try to stay as close as I can to that scene while still doing my day job because I obviously can't uh, just go to every InfoSec conference out there. So I try to restrict it to Black Hat, DEF CON, and, and sometimes ThoughtCon in Chicago, which is a great conference as well. Now, you also send, uh, take your kids to some camps as well, don't you? Yeah, I don't really. I haven't really taken them to uh, to the Black Hat DefCon scene because, frankly, um, it's in Vegas, and I just I don't really <laughs> think Vegas is a good place for kids. Um, but you know, I, I took them out to uh, to Chris Hoff's uh, Hat Kid um, uh, a year or two ago, and, and that was okay. They were a little bit old for that conference, but I think they enjoyed it. I mean, they they sat in the Lockpick Village and just picked locks for like a half an hour, an hour, and just really loved it. And we ended up I bought a lockpick set for them so they could play with it at home. And so they they took an interest in it. But um, I also I, I've tried hard with my kids to not push a particular agenda about what they learn about, especially even in technology. Because I, I felt like it would be a disservice if I forced them down the path of what I've learned. Like, oh, you should go learn Windows desktops and apps because, you know, who knows what's going to happen by the time they're an adult. And if I push them down this path of learning that stuff and they end up being highly irrelevant by the time they get to college, I just I didn't want to push on them uh, what I wanted them to do. I wanted them to have their own interest and pursue it in the way that they wanted to. Yeah, I completely agree with that because my wife says that sometimes with me too as I have the... The kids down here helping me cable stuff or helping me rack and stack <laughs> stuff in my lab. So I'm like, and she's like, "Are you gonna force them in IT?" I'm like, "They can do whatever they want." I'm like, "Oh, this is just right now because I'm keeping them occupied and I can still get work done." So <laughs> like, you're, you're looking for subcontractors. Uh, maybe, but not at this time. <laughs> what about, um, what about Andrew, are you trying to uh, trying to get some uh, subcontract developers over there? Uh, not at all. No, uh, I, I, I'd be like you as well. I, I, I wouldn't push Ben or Fionn in any way or direction towards what, what I do. Um, the only reason I do it is because I love it, um, and I wouldn't want my my children to to do something that they didn't love. You know, I mean, both Ben and Fionn have shown a lot of interest in in IT, obviously, um, because you know there's iPads and there's MacBooks and everything lying around the house, and you know Ben is just, at two and a half. He was unlocking my phone with with my six digit code. So you know they're they they are very very sharp. I just you know. I'll nurture it if they show interest, but I, I definitely won't push anything on them, you know, yourself. <laughs> I, I got to ask, did you, guys, did you guys see the video, it might have been a Vine or something like that, of uh, a guy that had, a dad that had touch ID enabled on his phone and his kid picked up his hand when he was sleeping and touched it on the iPhone and walked away? <laughs> no, that's funny, though. <laughs> Brilliant. It's <laughs> <laughs> genius. Yeah, one thing, too, about what Andy was saying about his son getting on his, on his, uh, his phone and doing stuff, you know, you notice today with, with kids growing up in that touch-enabled world to where... You know, my, my nieces and nephews and even even my daughter, being three years old, can pretty much own a touch-enabled device without any help. You know, she can get yeah. on there, download apps, break in, you know, get into it, do whatever she wants, and she's doing more stuff through her wife's Like, how does she do that? 
I, I think the operative word you used there was break into. Yeah. <laughs> the, the touch enable thing with kids is just so interesting. Because, I mean, I, mean, I remember even then, even before he turned two. Sorry, this uh, frontline shatter has now become baby shatter. But um, <laughs> uh, even even before um, even before Ben was two, like you know those uh, kind of manual rolling advertisements you'd see outside malls and that kind of stuff, where it's a it's a picture and then it'll roll by and another one will come up. I remember Ben even before two going up and trying to scroll it past as if yeah. he could move it himself. You know so. <laughs> Well, hey, maybe advertisers should pay attention to that. Maybe there's a market there. Yeah. So, um, so kind of last uh, qu- question as we wind things down here. Um, you know, what market or technology are, are you kind of watching? You know, and at the moment, um, and it can be anything: infosec, EUC, anything out there. And also, what excites you about that that technology or market? Oh my God! How many more hours do we have? <laughs> <laughs> we could talk all day, but we try to keep our episodes um, under an hour. Yeah, so I, I think th- this is this is difficult to answer for me um, because there are literally so many technologies that I think are interesting. Um, you know, I, some of them I have to be a little bit careful about what I talk about as interesting because it's things that you know VMware in some way, shape, or form is pursuing. So I got to be a little bit careful about that. But um, ignoring VMware for a moment and who I work for and everything, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about what me personally, Sean thinks is is really interesting at the moment. Um, and that is uh, security. Um, you know, when you think about uh, all the rise of, uh, of attacks that have occurred over the years and some very, very public ones on the retail side and financial services side and that kind of stuff, um, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, no matter what companies do to try to defend and be reactive, in many cases they're losing. Now, in some cases they're losing because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're just doing things improperly, you know, as evident by the, the Home Depot case, there were some very public announcements that came out from people that worked there that said, hey, our practices were horrible, we weren't doing this, we weren't doing that. So in some cases, it's just through sheer negligence. In other cases, it's a company does everything they possibly can do and is still getting compromised because the people that are attacking them are so sophisticated. Um, so, you know, along those lines, I think you know, the way that, that IT security operates today, and there's, there's many, many facets to IT security, so I'm, I'm not going to try to say that, you know, every one of them is amazing and compelling. Uh, there's some that are just flat-out boring. But I do think that there's such a huge interest right now in how do we protect and secure information, uh, especially as more and more companies move uh, workloads to the cloud and SaaS-based applications and all those kind of things. So, you know, trying to figure out ways to protect ourselves while still, you know, sharing things on a global scale is incredibly interesting to me. Um, and again, this is interesting to me on a personal level, not so much me as a VMware person. VMware has their own agenda of what they want to work on, but I just find the information security space so compelling and so interesting, um, particularly right now. Like, you know, it's, it's always been an interesting area to, to uh, watch and pay attention to in the course of the last, you know, 20 years. But specifically in the last few years, I think things have sort of reached a boiling point in terms of compromises and losses and all those kind of things that I think it's really... A, a great time to, to think about that industry and focus on what people are doing. There's some really compelling technologies that have been coming out in the last few years that I think are really going to change IT security for the future. Yeah, and I agree. You know, definitely with with things happening and some of the attacks and and things that we read in the public. You know, it's definitely something that needs to be you know thought about and carefully planned and making sure that you know you're you're doing all your due diligence and not doing you know dumb processes or leaving yourself vulnerable you know understand there's some very very smart people and very sophisticated you know attacks that they do 
um, but you know, at least do what you can on your side to, to mitigate your exposure and, and, and being vulnerable to some of those things. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely not there's there's no substitute for for doing your homework and doing your due diligence. I mean, you know, if if a customer gets owned because they're eight months behind on patching, you know, that that's fault. just that's you know, a lot of ways their own fault. Mm-hmm. And I think in the, in the case of you know security, people are always looking for that silver bullet, like that one piece of software or that one hardware thing that you're going to do that's just going to make everything miraculously get better. And unfortunately, in many ways, there's a lot of truth to the notion of defense in depth and having sort of a layered security approach. Um, there is not one thing you're going to do that's going to stop an attack. It's, it's more important that you spend effort and time analyzing all the different layers and and purchasing, you know, products and services, and investing in updating your methodology and how you treat things in in all facets of security to make things better, even down to things like physical security, which is many times neglected. I mean, there's there's a lot of people that do stupid things like you know work in high security places and have their badge facing out where someone can take a photograph of it and clone the photograph, and you know, it, there's just a lot of things that you got to be careful with. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting it's an interesting market, particularly you know everything's getting so sophisticated. You know, the, the Stuxnet as a prime example, where they were targeting the physical appliances that were in use. It, it's it's no longer a case where you can defend against attack, as, as you pointed out there. It's it's a case where you you have to mitigate the the damage that an attack could have on on every vector, because if they're going to get in, they're going to get in. But what they get access to is is your next breach of control, really, isn't it? Well, I don't know if you guys have seen this in the news, like two or three days ago it came out, but there is a new side channel attack that has been shown where they can manipulate uh, through bit fiddling uh, the contents of RAM uh, and actually alter code execution completely external from the code process. Yeah, I, I saw that. I saw a tweet you did about that as, as well. So that, that one that one's a pretty, pretty scary looking vulnerability right there, our attack itself. So... Yeah. yeah, it's one of those kind of things that I don't think, uh, you know, there's, there's much from a software solution perspective you're going to be able to defend against something like that, unfortunately. It's going to be very, very hard to protect uh, against that kind of a, a situation. Um, you know, we're going to start closing things out. You know, again, we appreciate your time. Um, I, again, I appreciate, you know, the help you, you've done with me as transitioning to a independent consultant. Um and so, you know, we look forward to what's more in store for, for VMware and the things you, you do there. Yeah, we've got, we've got some exciting things coming up. I, I will say that, um, you know, I've, I've been really impressed at the pace of innovation of VMware over the last 18 months. And I can only tell you that there's even more coming. Uh, and I think you guys will be pleasantly surprised the rate at which we're um, adding capabilities, um, you know, in, in completely new areas as well as, um, you know, catching up in some areas that we have gaps against some of our competition. So uh, I think you guys will be pleasantly surprised in the course of the next uh, couple of months and uh, throughout the end of the year at some of the really cool things that we're doing. So uh, I would just say stay tuned. Uh, A lot of good stuff coming. All right. Well, we're going to shut things down here. So thank you again, Sean, for joining us today on Episode 5 of the uh, Frontline Chatter Podcast. Um, We'll catch you next time. Uh, Thank you, everybody, and have a good day.